Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Now, many of you have heard versions of FP Live on this feed before. That's because the old feed, FP Playlist, used to showcase great audio from around the pod world. And FP Live, the video product, is a relatively new thing at Foreign Policy. Well, starting this week, we're going to bring you FP Lives here in audio all of the time. If you haven't heard them already, these are live discussions we have on foreignpolicy.com with what I think are the smartest thinkers and doers in the world of global affairs. Every week, I interview policymakers, world leaders, writers, and also just people with really interesting takes on world affairs. Our discussions are, first and foremost, substantive. The way I think about them is, I want to learn something new, and hopefully along the way, so will you. And so in that spirit, here's episode one. We're roughly at the two-year mark of Joe Biden's presidency. It's been an incredibly busy and turbulent couple of years in the world. Think about it. We've had the greatest land war on European soil since World War II. There have been major U.S. sanctions on not only Russia, but also China, amid an escalating and new Cold War of sorts. And perhaps because of that, there's been a resurgence in calls for multi-alignment, not non-alignment, but a new multipolar world from the countries of the global south. And of course, we also saw the end of the so-called war in Afghanistan. That's just a flavor of it. So, so much else has happened in the last two years. The question then is how the Biden administration has performed as it tries to navigate this very messy changing world around us. And there are many subparts to that question. Is there a Biden doctrine? What animates the president's worldview? Is the president even the most significant player when it comes to American foreign policy today? How has the administration performed on the war in Ukraine? What exactly is its China policy, if it has one? And what does all of that mean for the rest of the world? So many questions. I brought together two very interesting thinkers to discuss all of this. Nadia Shadlau is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. She was, until 2018, a deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration. And Stephen Wertheim is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also the author of Tomorrow the World, a book I greatly enjoyed. Nadia and Stephen, you'll note, come from very different backgrounds and perspectives. Nadia literally helped shape Trump's foreign policy. Stephen has over the years become an important advocate for ending the so-called forever wars. He is way to the left of Nadia. But what's interesting about the discussion we had is that Stephen is actually more critical of the Biden administration's foreign policy than Nadia is. Go figure. 
This difference is especially stark when it comes to China. Of course, Biden's tough stance on Beijing is in some sense a continuation of a trend that began under Trump. So perhaps that makes sense. Anyway, I don't want to give more away. Listen in to the full discussion. Remember, if you subscribe to FP, you can listen to these discussions live, and we might even pose your questions directly to our guests. Go to foreignpolicy.com, use the code FPLIVE for a big discount. Who doesn't love a discount, huh? Let's dive in. Thanks to you both for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. My pleasure as well. All right. Great to have you, Stephen. I know it's your second FP Live. Nadia, it's your first. Great to have you both on. So um, I'm going to put you both on the spot to start things off. Let's get our cards on the table. Stephen, you first. Um, you're currently teaching a course, so you're familiar with grading. If you had to just quickly A through F grade the Biden administration's foreign policy so far, what would you give them? Well, fact check, I don't have to give out grades here at Yale Law School, so <laughs> this is a foreign experience for me. All right, I'm going to have to give you a, a, a split verdict. So in terms of execution under difficult conditions, I would give the Biden administration good marks, B+, plus. maybe you could convince me to move up to an A-, minus. but as I pull back and reflect is U.S. foreign policy on a trajectory now to be more responsive to the needs of the American people, to U.S. interests, that's a low grade. That's more like a C. I'm mm -hmm. really worried about where we're going. And I do think the Biden administration, particularly when it comes to relations with China, has played a, a more negative than, than positive role in bringing us to this place. So I think Biden himself has had a lot of admirable qualities as president and commander in chief, but he risks handing to his successor a U.S. foreign policy that's less strategic and more costly and more risky than the one that he inherited from President Trump. Okay, so lots to unpack there, and we'll come back to many of those issues, including China. But Nadia, before we dive in, let me put you on the spot as well. And you can do a range as well if you don't want to give us a hard grade. Well, I think the beauty of this is this shows how grades are very, very subjective, right? So the students and the audiences will be happy <laughs> to hear me say that, right? Because our assumptions are quite different. So I would probably give the Biden administration much closer to a B, B plus on its approach toward China, whereas I would give it probably a C and many other aspects of its foreign policy, precisely because there is a lot of rhetoric in many cases, whether it's human rights or energy climate-related policies, and the gap between rhetoric and actual implementation. So this is a perfect example of why different professors will give you different grades. <laughs> That's fascinating. And obviously, and we'll get into this when we talk about China in a few minutes, but uh, one of the things I want to get into is how different the Biden administration's China policy is to, say, the Trump administration's. And your take there, Nadia, will be very interesting. One more question before we get into specifics. Is there even a clear Biden foreign policy doctrine? Um, Stephen, if, if you had to point to one, is there one? There isn't a doctrine in a strict sense, like the Carter Doctrine or the Truman Doctrine, that is a statement of U.S. vital interests and uh, says gives a sense of what the United States would be willing to do in support of its vital interests. But if the question is about Biden's overall vision, I'd say it's been a tale of two Bidens. 
the first year Biden was uh, trying to end the forever wars, promoted a foreign policy for the American people or what I call the foreign policy for the middle class that, as Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor said, aimed to judge every decision by uh, how it advances the daily lives of ordinary Americans. I think, you know, that's a very different Biden than the one that's emerged at this point in the wake of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, uh, is full-scale invasion one year ago, more or less. Uh, now the Biden doctrine, if you like, seems to be more a defense of the free world, specifically against autocratic and revisionist powers, namely China and Russia. And I think the new national security strategy reflects that vision. And it's notable that the, the free world, a term Biden has used in, in connection to these challenges, is a specifically Cold War concept. It's defined negatively uh, the protection of U.S. allies and partners and potentially non-allies and partners from encroachment by uh, illiberal Eurasian other. And so mm. I think that's where we are right now. Mm. And I know, Stephen, in the past, you pointed out that instead of seeing the world as one divided among democracies and autocracies, a better way of framing the war in Ukraine for the Biden administration would be to talk about sovereignty. Um, we'll get to that when we talk about Russia and Ukraine more specifically. But Nadia, same question to you, someone who was so important to the last administration in framing a doctrine. What is your sense of whether there is a Biden doctrine? And if there is one, how would you define it? Well, I agree with Stephen that I don't think there is a Biden doctrine or it would be very difficult to define it, but less because of chronological reasons and more because of a fundamental division in the administration that I see. So you have some that are uh, focused on China and that I would argue are seeing the world as a competitive place, as one of, of competition um, with, with other powers and rivals. But then you see many more, I would argue, that are uh, adhering to a much more traditional progressive leftist agenda, which puts climate at, at the head of everything, uh, global problems at the head, head of everything. Now, just to clarify, my view on global problems is all these problems begin at the state level and really can only be solved at the state level. So just to fend off critics, um, that's what I mean by that criticism. So I think you see kind of a, a large portion of the Biden administration adhering to the world as they wish it would be. And you see some adhering to the world uh, view that it is. And, and they're pushing a more hard-headed approach, uh, you know, necessarily, uh, necessarily a sober look at, at China and at Russia and, and other countries. So that's where I see more of the division and how it plays out, you know, we'll be, um, we'll see how it unfolds over the next two years. And I should remind our viewers again around the world, if you want a sense of what uh, Nadia thinks a conservative um, foreign policy should look like, uh, she's written a terrific essay for us that's uh, linked on the very page that you're on. So you can see more about that there. Nadia, let me continue with, with you. Um, if you know, if we move now into focusing a bit more on Russia and Ukraine, what's your sense of how the Biden administration has managed uh, this crisis uh, over the last eighteen months or so, and what would you have done differently? Yeah, well, 
first, you know, the crisis really began before Biden came into office, right? Really, where this is unfolded, we can use many, many years, but if we use 2014 as a starting point, that's a good one. At that time, uh, the Obama administration had uh, a choice about whether or not to bolster Ukraine's defenses to stop any further encroachments by Russia or to facilitate, to help the Ukrainians stop any further encroachments. And the choice was made not to. Um, the Trump administration uh, restarted the provision of javelins to Ukraine in 2017. That was halted by the Biden administration uh, in the hopes that some discussions with Putin at the time could change change the, the, the situation, uh, which began to, I think it was about 2021 that they were having talks, the Biden administration decided to halt the provision of, of those defensive weapons. So the precursors to this, uh, you know, predated February of 2022. I do think the Biden administration has taken the right approach in providing the Ukrainians with the weapons it needs to defend itself from this brutal invasion by Russia. I think there are problems with the incrementalism of this approach. So the president has used maybe 30 times what's called his drawdown authorities, which mm -hmm. really makes it hard to plan. This incrementalism sends certain signals. I think it I think it, it detracts from the strength of sending the weapons, right? It sends mixed signals. It gives time for the Russians to regroup. Like right now with the tanks, we're seeing we've taken a decision, but the actual implementation of that decision will not occur for a year. So we're taking so we're creating actually a situation in which Russia can plan and adapt. The operational conditions on the ground aren't going to change with the tanks because of that year de delay. And then we need to wonder why we're not using existing uh, pre-positioned stocks of tanks to get to Ukraine. So again, you sort of have a, a series of mixed signals. Mm. But I'm sure Steve probably has a different view on that. Yeah, I imagine, Steve, you, you've written about this recently, I think, as well. Um, and, you know, your sense is that the, the administration has actually built a fierce and united coalition supporting Ukraine. Uh, expand on that. And I'm sure you disagree as well a bit with Nadia here. Well, I, you know, I think so far, um, my assessment of the administration's handling of Ukraine and Russia policy is more positive than not. I actually think the administration was right uh, to pursue a stable and predictable relationship with Russia, which now sounds ridiculous, but that's because we have the benefit of, of hindsight. It made sense to uh, try to set those priorities given the challenges of security in Asia uh, when Biden came into office. And he quickly adjusted once he understood that the invasion was going to happen uh, and did a remarkable job releasing intelligence and preparing U.S. allies in the world for what was going to happen. And I certainly, looking at where the war is today, I wouldn't go back and, you know, not support Ukraine and enable Ukraine to uh, retake some of the territory that it's, that it's lost. The concern I have uh, really is twofold. Uh, the first part is, where are we going? Uh, mm -hmm. Where are we really going? And the administration isn't transparent about where exactly our objectives lie in this war, though I think for the most part, the way they framed it is pretty reasonable. Uh, but there are recent reports, for example, that Ukraine might consider putting Crimea at risk and potentially liberating Crimea as part of this war. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what the Biden administration would do if that is what Ukraine wanted to do. But the escalation risks are so great in that case that this is something that we should not really have on the table, I think, 
as part of this war. I'm somewhat optimistic that Ukraine, for its own reasons, won't want to do that. But this could become, you know, a very dangerous situation. I also praise Biden for warning of World War III. I mean, he's understood the stakes. He rejected very early on a no-fly zone, which for some reason became a media phenomenon for, for, for several weeks around March of, of 2021. I think he's quite sober uh, about the risks of, of escalation. And for that, I give him credit. But I'm still concerned that there is a kind of escalation of the rhetoric as well as the uh, actual military support that the West is sending. And so the, the real question is the old the old question that we're familiar with from the post 9-11 wars, tell me how this ends. And nobody has a very good answer to that right now. And the other point I would just make is that I think the administration's gotten better in this regard, but it has framed support you for Ukraine so heavily in terms of uh, supporting a democracy against the aggression of of an autocracy, which then, of course, translates into rising tensions with China and makes people view Taiwan in light of Ukraine. Mm. Uh, but it's on its own terms. These are uh, framings that are actually uh, offensive to a number of countries that perhaps might be more attracted to Ukraine's side in the in the global south, because I think they understand that the fundamental issue here, what's really at stake is Russia's aggression against a sovereign state and its violation of the most basic rule of international relations and the prohibition of the use of force in the UN Charter. And that would be true regardless of whether Ukraine uh, were a democracy or not. Uh, and so I think to a number of observers, they are being asked to um, you know, join a kind of endless struggle of democracies against autocracies and also pretend like we didn't all know yesterday that Ukraine had major problems with its own democratic status. So from a certain perspective, that's quite prevalent in the global South. It looks like it's very easy for the West to um, you know, deem a European white Christian country to suddenly be an honorary democracy, hmm. um, which is a privilege that they won't be afforded if and, they're in a similar position. So I do think the administration has shifted more uh, to a to a sovereignty approach. Right. And there's also the issue there, Stephen, that, you know, we think of or we can fall into the trap of thinking of democracies and autocracies as a black and white issue. when in reality, um, for many countries around the world, it is great. Um, there's a lot here to unpack. I want to take us to China and the global south in the time we have left. But before I do that, Nadia, just one last beat on Ukraine and Europe. And when you were in government, the Trump administration had a very different sort of relationship with NATO and with alliance building. That has changed, obviously, in the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, how do you view uh, America's relations with uh, European countries and with NATO right now through the lens that you used when you were in government? Well, one, just to go back, because I do think it's important to respond just to Stephen's point about how this will end. Remember, the Ukrainians and the Russians have a big say in this as well, right? This is not yeah. all being driven by the United States. And escalation has a lot to do with Russia's choices as well. Um, so I think it's important to, to recognize um, the agency of Russia and of Ukraine. Look, during the Trump administration, um, he was very tough on allies for increasing their defense spending and their capabilities. He was very tough on Germany for its dependence on Russia for oil and gas. 
So I think it really depends on the assumptions going in. And those two, um, those two matters, those were, were right positions to have. And in fact, what we're seeing today is a sense of these capabilities and we're scrambling to, to meet the needs, right? In terms of our uh, ability to procure weapon systems quickly, in terms of stockpiles in Europe, all of those things that aren't gonna change in two or three years or even four years. I think those approaches still hold. I think now what we've seen with Russia's invasion is that Europeans that before were quite skeptical, some of the necessity of NATO, not all, but some, especially young people in countries like Germany, suddenly have very different views about, about the value of the alliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, again, was driven by the fact that uh, eyes were now open to, um, to the reality of the world and the reality of power and the importance of military capabilities. Is the diplomacy of the U.S.-European relationship smoother? Yes. But I would argue that the fundamentals there, both the positives and the negatives and the tensions um, existed during the previous administration and still to a a degree exist today, right? We're seeing that now with the European pushback on the Biden administration's subsidies for electric vehicles. So there Mm -hmm. always a a sense of tension and cooperation across, um, across the alliance for years. Mm. I'm not sure that it was actually as dramatically bad as most of the media put it in the previous administration. I think probably if you look at actually the reality of what was uh, being discussed and talked about, and I know for a fact the level of diplomatic cooperation at the White House with the National Security Advisor talking to his counterparts every week, the quint uh, with the communications, all of that, it went on quite a bit as much as in the current administration, just not just covered differently. Sure, no, uh, point taken there. You know, and you use the phrase, Nadia, uh, the realities of the world. It's also interesting to me that NATO now sees China um, as a strategic threat. And I just want to use that as a, as a way to take us now to discussing China. You said at the start of this conversation that you would actually grade the Biden administration fairly well, fairly highly on, on its China policies Just expand on that a little bit. And I know this is an area where you and Stephen will disagree, but I want to to understand, you know, how you view uh, uh, Biden's China policy and and why you think that it is headed in the right direction. Yeah, well, I think most of the the Biden China experts, the the Asia, the group that's handling that Asia and China portfolio, see China, as as their national security strategy said, as a long-term strategic competitor to the United States, because China does not just seek to advance its ideology, its authoritarianism, it's within its own, own system, but also externally, right? So they see a link between China's uh, internal goals of CCP control of the uh, the Chinese Communist Party's control and its Marxist-Leninist ideology. They see it really as as an ideological uh, threat as well, not speaking for them, but reading reading books that some of their top officials have written. They see technology as a key enabler of this type of political economic system, as an enabler of China's extraordinary military modernization. So because of that, they've crafted a policy which both seeks to slow China's development of systems um, that could harm the U.S. down down the line, as well as to internally advance uh, what the U.S. needs to do internally. So I see two sides to their China policy. Um, You know, on what the U.S. has to do internally, I think we could do much better, but that's a different subject. 
But I think they see China as a long-term strategic threat uh, to the United States. So I happen to agree with that. I think there's a lot of evidence for that, but there are different views about that, right? I think they see China as an ideological, um, having an ideological uh, drive and rationale as well. There's a good article that Kevin Rudd recently wrote, right. wrote about that. Right. Um, and I want to bring Stephen in on this, Nadia, but just one more follow-up to you. Um, in this sort of ideological battle that you point out, and I think Stephen nodded to this earlier, I've written about this as well, you know, much of the rest of the world doesn't see uh, the same ideological divide. I think they see two giant trading partners that they really don't want to see in a big fight. They see uh, sanctions on the semiconductor industry, and they worry about secondary effects on their economies and their companies. What's your sense then of how to navigate that that ideological divide that you point out, but that the rest of the world, you know, doesn't see as useful for them? Well, it's useful for us because we need to understand what's at stake. So we need to develop a set of policies based on that. Having said that, I think we've actually haven't forced other countries into that framework, right? We have uh, perfectly decent relationships with India. Well, in India and 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 China, uh, India, the U.S. and China align, but India has been, you know, is not perfectly aligned with the U.S. in in many areas. We have decent relationship with the Saudis, right? We have who have who actually have pretty strong relationships uh, with China, with technology, with investment. So I don't think in our external policies um, we're actually forcing countries to take a particular line. We're explaining to them why we think there are dangers in having Huawei, for instance, in their technology. We're arguing and making a case for why U.S. labor practices are probably better than Chinese labor practices uh, in many African countries where there is mining going on. But I don't see many examples where we're kicking people out of the partnership circle um, because they don't agree with this. We have very good, strong relationships with Singapore. Um, we've acknowledged for a long time that Singapore has played you know, has has had to has uh, is has strong relationships with China as as well as with the United States. So we're not kicking people out of our friendship circle, but we are, I think, appropriately uh, letting other countries know the stakes that are involved and long term what these types of relationships, whether they're economic, whether it's investments, technology, could mean for them down the line. Got it. Um, <clears throat> I'll just point out there that, of course, you know, with sanctions, what ends up happening is there are downstream sort of requirements on companies and countries that, you know, we haven't even fully broken down and understood over the last few months. But Stephen, let me bring you in. Um, we've just got a few minutes left. You've written about this. You've you've nodded to this already in this conversation, but you're worried about where the U.S.-China relationship is headed. You've advocated for more U.S. restraint. Just talk us through that a little bit. Why are you worried? What do you think the Biden administration is doing wrong? So I have no problem with uh, competing with China. We should have a competitive approach toward China. Um, I think uh, AUKUS uh, may have been a positive move. Uh, I think the, uh, revitalizing the Quad is probably a positive. A lot of the changes that are happening in the region, like Japan's dramatic plans to become more of a military power. Uh, that's happening, I think, largely because of what Beijing is doing. Uh, but we're also playing a role in fostering that. Some of these developments are positive. We should be clear-eyed about the nature of the PRC. 
But I think ultimately where we want to get to is a place of competitive coexistence. And the administration, as Nadia has suggested, I think is kind of of two minds on this. They say they want to avoid a Cold War and they want to coexist, but that's like a throwaway line in the statements toward China. And increasingly, it looks like a, an afterthought in the policies as well. So the restrictions on, on semiconductor exports, and we are forcing countries to choose. We're forcing them to choose whether they really want to leave our, our orbit and rupture relations with us or not. And they're not choosing to do that, but we're forcing them. That's why we're imposing these restrictions. They're not doing it voluntarily. Uh, but, um, you know, and I have no, again, no problem doing that if it's really in our national interest. Uh, but, um, but I worry that it's not. I worry about the second and third order effects. And I worry particularly about the statements that President Biden has made about Taiwan, uh, which may not be the fault of his staff, but they matter. Uh, and my view is that we have, yes, we have a deterrence problem, but we also have a security spiral problem where if we seem to creep up to and cross Beijing's red line, uh, I'm afraid we will have a conflict over Taiwan. That doesn't make Beijing right to act in those circumstances, right? But we should act prudently. And for some reason, the president, which seems to quite well understand the risk of World War III with respect to Russia, has degraded the one China policy on numerous occasions by making these non gaffes uh, uh, that suggest that, you know, Taiwan has uh, uh, the ability to declare independence. It's really a question for Taiwan to decide that's not the one China policy by suggesting mm -hmm. that he would send forces to Taiwan if attacked um, and resolving strategic, uh, resolving strategic ambiguity without saying that he's doing that. Uh, again, you know, not the one China policy. So we're chipping away mm -hmm. and um, we'll, we're, we're, we're taking a risk. And I just don't see what the gain is uh, even in terms of deterrence, right? I think it's right to try to make Taiwan uh, more able to defend itself through the porcupine defense strategy. We're not there, unfortunately. Right. That makes sense to me, but not needling Beijing in a way that's quite dangerous. Right. And uh, I just want to urge our viewers to take a look at John Bateman's essay on this very issue in FP, which I think lays out the stakes uh, of uh the semiconductor sanctions uh, and, and where they're headed. I know you both have to run. Nadia Shadlow, Stephen Wertheim, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. And that was our very first formal episode of FP Live on this feed. Thank you for listening. Again, if you want to watch these in video live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers get a chance to be a part of the conversation. You can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. You can use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.